talk about the Gospel of Matthew snapshots today. And I was about to finish Matthew when I got this email from someone in class who said, Stop! How can you pass up? You didn't deal with these passages, which I'd like to hear your perspective on. And so I thought, okay, I'll open it up. And I did. I told you, if you've got problem passages in Matthew email them to me or tell them to me and I'll look at those problem passages this week and that's what I'm going to do. Now there's a problem with these problem passages. You know what the problem is? Too many requests, too little time. So we're just going to go through the uh, mails that I got and I started to do it in a random generator and just randomly pick. And then I thought, no, I'll do it in order based upon how they came to me. And then I thought, no, I like the random better. So I've done the random and I thought about just putting the the questions in in a hat and pulling them out here. But then I realized it wouldn't necessarily jive with the PowerPoint. So you're just gonna have to trust me. This is pretty random, okay? So here we go. Uh, let's grab the first one. The first one came, uh, uh, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-two, and I've left everybody's last name off of these requests. So you can just wonder which Anne it was, but I didn't ask Anne Young if I could use her last name. And so I didn't feel comfortable putting it on there, but Matthew twenty-seven fifty-two, I'm sure she was asking for Bill's sake. And so let's look at it to get to Matthew 2752, we need to read Matthew 2751 and kind of get a running start. Matthew 2751 says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Now, this is Jesus is on the cross, and Matthew is detailing the events that happened while he was on the cross, at, at least at this point. And then we don't know exactly how the, the, the timing of Matthew is in his comments here. But Matthew continues then. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And that is Matthew 27, 51 through 53. You got it? Now, does that strike you as kind of bizarre? Um, It can be kind of bizarre. So what I'd like to do is take it apart a little bit and let's look at it and see what sense we can make of it. Now, the wonderful thing about problem passages is there are loads of different ideas of what they mean. And so many passages um, uh, uh, are Real easy for me to stand up here and tell you, here's what this passage means. But there's not a lot of integrity in that. Because I'm I'm not Johnny Bible answer guy. I'm just someone who spends a a good bit of his time prayerfully and and have for uh, 50 years prayerfully trying to understand Scripture. And and so I'm going to give you my perspective on things. But I was talking to a a wonderful lady in class back there, and she said, why don't you ever get John MacArthur here? And I said, well, I I need to look into that. And uh, 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 I said, you know, I I don't agree with everything John MacArthur says, though I do agree with a whole lot of what he says. 
Um, uh, I said, but for that matter, I don't agree with everything I say. And so, uh, you know, you, you got to understand that I'm going to be giving you some ideas behind some of these passages. I'm not the guy who's going to sit here and say, I know the scholars have debated this for thousands plus years, but thankfully you live in 2022 where I've arrived so I can tell you what it really means. Um, I'm not I'm not so bold. And so with a, 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 a bit of trepidation, Let's look at these passages because there is some good insight that we can gain if we just look at them, even if we don't wind up with all of the answers that we want. So I want to start your focus here. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, you've got Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one and behold. The and behold I've not highlighted. Over here in Greek, it's kai idu. Matthew uses that word idu. In, in a really wonderful way. And, and we have, in the 22nd century, great ways to speak with emphasis. You know, there's the old saying about the lawyer in court, that um, if you've got the facts on your side, you pound the facts. If you've got the law on your side, you pound the law. If you don't have the facts or the law on your side, you pound the table. You know, we, we, we've got emphasis, and we can make it. Um, we can put emojis on text messages. Uh, uh, my, uh, uh, one of my daughters was looking at one of my text messages I was sending and, and said, well, you can't send that. And I said, Why? And she said, well, it's only got one exclamation mark. I said, well, I want them to know I mean it. She said, it takes three exclamation marks for you to mean it. If you only have one, it doesn't mean you mean it. It means you're angry or something like that, uh, or you're speaking sternly. And then, but, but we can write in all capitals if we want to shout in an email. I can write you a letter and I can underline things. English grammar has an exclamation mark. There are all sorts of ways to draw attention to what we're saying. For Matthew, he had a word, edu. And he used that word to say, pay attention to what's coming. Now, it does mean behold or look or see, but he uses it in ways of not saying, not meaning see. He just uses it as it's one of the ways you're able to use their signal words or one of the ways you're able in Greek to say, pay attention. And so the Lubbock translation would be, look it. Okay? Look it. He's saying, pay attention here. Kai edu. This is, this is worth knowing. This is like bold print. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, most scholars believe that Matthew probably had at his fingertips the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark having been written first, or perhaps at least portions of the Gospel of Mark. And maybe uh, Mark was using portions of a previously published 
uh, uh, manuscript are sections of, of speeches and teachings of Jesus. I dare say go so far as to say that, that Matthew, the tax collector, was probably a note taker who was taking notes. And those were available both for Mark, uh, uh, for the Gospel of Matthew that's, that's written later in Greek. And, and so you, you've got certain things. But Greek, unlike English, is really hard to, to just reproduce um, accidentally in the same form. When I was a, a young lawyer, uh, I worked for a gentleman who was the president of the State Bar of Texas for a year. And he was a marvelous lawyer and a marvelous gentleman, and he wanted to talk about how important mediation is. And so he had a passage from Aristotle that he wanted to put on the cover of the bar journal. And he wanted the, the uh, Aristotelian phrase that he thought was relevant to be in Greek. Now this is back in the early 1980s. And the resources back then, at least to me, were not as um, widely available as they are today. Today that would be no trouble. But he called me into his office and he said to me, Mark, you've got a degree in Greek and Hebrew, right? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I need you to take this phrase from Aristotle. That's about 10 words. And translate it uh, back into the Greek that Aristotle would have had. And I said, there's no way to do that. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, Greek is, is a language where you can use so many different cases and you can use so much different word order and you've got such vocabulary differences and things can, can use an article or not use an article and, and the, the, you can have a syndeton for emphasis. And I, there's just no way I can do that and be accurate. And he said, well, couldn't you do it where at least if someone's reading your Greek, they'd get the same translation? And I said, yeah, I could do that but it would not be Aristotle's Greek. And he said, well, just do that. I said, well, all right, I'll have that for you uh, in a little bit. And so I went and prepared it, brought it back to him and gave it to him. And he just sent it in and, and didn't, he, he acted like it was Aristotle's Greek, which I told him not to do. And it gets published on the front page of the bar journal, this Greek of Aristotle. And he did it because I think he wanted everybody to think he was that brilliant. He didn't speak a lick of Greek um, or, or read a bit of Greek either. And so everything was hunky-dory until about six weeks later, he calls me back into his office. Now that's a big deal to get called into this man's office. He's like the head of litigation at one of the major international firms. I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, you've gotten me in trouble. And I said, uh, what did I do? And he says, turns out your Greek isn't right. And I said, well, I mean, my Greek is, I told you everything. And he tosses me this letter from some lawyer in New York. The lawyer in New York says, uh, dear so-and-so, 
I got your article. I read your magazine, your journal. Um, I found it fascinating that you quote Aristotle in Greek and your quotation uses this word, and he put the word in there, which was not, to my knowledge, in use at the time of Aristotle. It looks to me like a New Testament Koine Greek word. And, and uh, the fellow said to me, he says, now, what am I going to do with that? And he said, I can't believe you used a New Testament word. And I said, okay, just give me a day with it. So I go back to my house and, and I've got, you know, the honking big Liddell Scott lexicon and I'm thumbing through looking for that Greek word and I find that Greek word and Liddell Scott will show all these references and I find where Aristotle or someone who's contemporary with him had used the word. And so I composed this letter. And I took it back and I handed it to him the next day. And I said, here's a letter. And the letter said, uh, dear so-and-so, uh, thank you for your interest. I'm so glad you read it. And you are right. That is a Koine Greek word. But it had usage long before the Koine New Testament. You'll find it in Herodotus. You'll find it in da da And I started citing all these different places the word was used, including Aristotle. And, uh, uh, but, and then it ends with, but I uh, applaud your careful reading of what I wrote. And... Uh, and he says, oh, I'm sending this. I am so sending this. And so he signed it and sent it out. Well, all to say, um, you can't, I, I dare say, I mean, you might be able to take some passage like John 1 and get pretty close. If you didn't know it was NRK, Hain Hologos, you could probably come pretty close to putting that into Greek, that, that clause. But even that, if you don't know what the Greek is, you, you just can't reproduce it with precision. And that's important because this story is also present in the Gospel of Mark. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to, to scoot this over and put the parallel Mark up here. And let's look at this together. Matthew says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And, and here we've got it. All right, this is the curtain. Now, there's a debate. There were two curtains in the temple. You had one curtain that separated uh, the, the court of women, in a sense, from, from the court where the men and, and, and the, the serious uh, Jewish stuff is going on. And then you also had another curtain that separated the Holy of Holies. And, and, and the, the word here is one, katapetatesma um, is, is used historically, for the curtain between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple. The Holy of Holies, remember, is where only the high priest could go and only on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur uh, once a year. And so that's, that's where the, originally in the tabernacle and, and uh, in the first temple, that's where the Holy of Holies uh, is where the, 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 the mercy seat and, and the, the Ark of the Covenant and all of that was kept. So that doesn't mean it's, it's got to be that because the word was also used for the outer curtain. But you need to know both. So the curtain um, um, of the temple was torn from top to bottom in two. Look at this. Was torn... It doesn't say in two till the end in Matthew. It says was torn from top to bottom in two. 
if you read it in Mark, Mark and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, reads the same except for behold, which is Matthew's edu. That's an insert from Matthew of, hey, this one's really important. I really want you looking at this. Mark doesn't have that. But if you continue to look at Mark, Mark has a different order. So if Mark came first, Matthew changes the order. Mark says, and the temple, uh, the curtain of the, of the temple okay, was torn in two from top to bottom. So Matthew has changed the order and taken torn in two. He's taken the in two and bumped it at the bottom. So Matthew has elevated that it was torn from top to bottom for his emphasis in his gospel. So we've got this passage here. Behold, the curtain was torn from top to bottom. Matthew makes that change because it's important that that be told. Now, if, if I'm going to tear something um, and, and I'm to take this sheet and I'm going to tear it, watch me, if, I'm, if my hands are up here and I'm at the top, watch me tear it from bottom to top. I can't do that. But if I tear it from top to bottom, that means I'm doing the tearing from the top. If I'm doing the tearing from the bottom, I can't if I'm up at the top. I guess I could take it and, and try to tear it this way, but that's pretty unnatural. We tear from top to bottom, right? And so the impression here, of course, is God's tearing this curtain. Now, if we look at this passage then, we've got the behold as an insert. This is very important the way Matthew's telling this. He wants it emphasized to you. And so we've got this passage. Let's move to the next. We've got the in two has changed place. Matthew has bumped in two at the bottom because he's emphasizing that it was torn from top to bottom. And then the question becomes, why is the curtain split? Well, I know that scholars have put out at least 12 different ideas. And that means there's probably tons more than that that I haven't ever come across. But I can count 12 different ideas. And I'm going to group some of them together, but give you some ideas. Now, as I do this, I want to warn you about something. There's a study in cognitive science, science of how we think. There's a, an area of cognitive science study called heuristics. H-E-U-R-I-S-T-I-C-S, -E heuristics. Heuristics are the shortcuts that we take in the way we think. I'm, I'd love to tell you that all of us are very logical chess players where we sit here and we just move logically through things. And we can do that at times. But that's not what we always do. Our brain takes mental shortcuts. And, and it's, it's, it's part of who we are. And it's part of how we're made. And one of the mental shortcuts that we take that you need to guard against here is we have a tendency to pick one thing over another. 
well, it's this or that. When sometimes it can be both. And so you always have to guard against the tendency to see something as left or right, or black and white, or one or two, or A or B. Because sometimes it's C, all of the above. All right? So that's a tendency we've got to be careful. So as we're looking at these reasons, recognize that God could have more than one reason. I mean, your kids, when your kids were growing up, when my kids were growing up, Dad, can I do this and this? Well, I could say, I I need you to do that. Why? Because I told you so. Well, that could be one reason, not a great reason, but it's a reason. Or how about because it's good for you? Well, that could be a reason. Or how about because you'll be glad you did and you'll thank me later? I mean, that works for monk. Um, but, but, you know, I, 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 there are lots of reasons. Okay, you with me? So don't tie God down to one of these. But let me throw out some ideas. First of all, God tore the separation between God and his people. And so you think about the Holy of Holies, if that's what the curtain is referring to. This area where the high priest could only go, and he could only go once a year, having already uh, made atonement for his own sins and the sins of the people. That, that curtain has been rent asunder by God. Because now we have a priesthood of all believers. Everybody has access through Jesus Christ into the very presence of God. And you don't need to wait for a certain day. And you don't need to sprinkle the blood of goats before you do it. You've got access into the very presence of the holy God of all eternity. Anytime you want. Through the work of Jesus Christ. And so God tears that. And, and Hebrews 9, the first eight verses, gives you good theology to back up this idea. And I think it's a very good idea. But I don't think it's the only idea worth looking at. If the curtain is referencing the outer curtain, then you might say here that God tore the separation between Jew and Gentile. And now everybody's welcome in. Women are welcome in. Gentiles are welcome in. The temple, the presence of God, is no longer the exclusive enclave of the Jew. More specifically, the Jewish male. And some of the the substance behind this in in the Mark version, it's almost immediately afterwards. Uh, Matthew inserts some additional material. But it says uh, 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 that the centurion acknowledges Jesus as the Son of God. And so it's the idea the curtain's been ripped apart, and, and that's the curtain that divided, uh, you know, Paul calls it in Ephesians, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile is gone. And that's something that it would be very important for Matthew to be emphasizing as Matthew writes his gospel that's targeted toward Jews. And he wants Jews to realize, you know, Matthew's always big on pointing out the Gentiles that come to Jesus. And he's writing it to a Jewish audience. And so that's, that's another idea. And it's a very good one. The third is that Jesus had said he would destroy the temple in three days, rebuild it. And in fact, that's one of the accusations lodged against Jesus at his trial in Matthew 26, 61. 
Hey, he said he would destroy the temple in three days. And so we have here in a very visual representation a substantive act that illustrates the metaphor of the temple being destroyed through the death of Christ and the whole temple cult and the temple system. Sacrifices are needed no more. The exclusivity of priests are gone. And so the temple curtain is torn. And that we see the inception of the destruction of the temple with the death of Christ. There's a fourth idea that's worth talking about. And this idea is that God has broken forth from his temple. So if God's behind the curtain, the curtain is ripped and God comes out. And God is breaking forth into the world. And you say, well, I mean, God's already in the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. But this is, this is a notable, notable idea. Uh, let me give you a couple of passages to look at. Matthew 3.16 is kind of the other bookend, the first bookend of this idea. And this is the baptism of Jesus. And so in Matthew 3.16, we see um, Jesus goes to be baptized. Let's make this a little bit bigger. Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan to be, to John, to be baptized by him. Now, look, I've got a yellow marker here so I can highlight. Matthew would just say, Edu, if he were up here talking, like, watch this. Um, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized to you. Jesus says, let it be so now. It's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consents. Look at verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. So it's the idea of God in the heavens. He opens up the heavens. He breaks the heavens. And the Spirit of God descends out of the heavens like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven. This, by the way, is the Edu in Matthew. And look, look it. A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And so you get this um, uh, uh, concept. And, and it's not just, you, you get this bookend concept of, of um, the heavens break open at the baptism of Christ. And God descends through the spirit of the dove, or through the spirit as a dove. And then in the end, uh, uh, the death of Christ, again, the heavens break open and, and, and the temple curtain is torn and God breaks forth. Uh, Ezekiel uh, 19 is another passage that, that works with this quite well. Ezekiel 19, verses 22 and 24. I clearly have written the wrong passage down here. Ignore that. My Ezekiel stops at 14. David Capes will get you that site later because he's writing on this. Um, there is a passage in Ezekiel where one of these chapters in Ezekiel that I clearly didn't enter right in the PowerPoint. And I don't know Ezekiel well enough to remember which one it was. But I can tell you I've got the verses right because I remember them on the page. It was 22 and 24 where God is going to break forth and come, come out. And, and so it's a prophetic language. 
and uh, you'll find it there. So this idea that God's breaking forth from his temple and something big is happening and something new is happening. And then there's a fifth view that God is angry and expressing his anger over the death of Christ. And th- this view is, is one that, that at first a lot of people find distasteful. Maybe it's because it's the anthropomorphic idea of God being angry, but the Bible speaks of God in his anger. And that God is angry over the death of Christ. You know, I have no doubt God is angry over the death of the children in Uvalde. I have no doubt that God is angry. You know, Jesus, Jesus does react with anger. Uh, uh, God, God's not a fan of sin, and he's not a fan of the consequences of sin. And it mars the human value that God gave us. And it mars human potential that God has set for us. And so I have no doubt that, that God could have such anger, but it's, it's carried out here. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. And, and that language is very prophetic language of God's anger. In 2 Samuel 22, 7 through 8, now I'm nervous. Every time I start flipping over here, like, gee, what else did I mess up? Um, 22, 7 and 8. Here you've got David giving a song of deliverance. And he says, in my distress, I called upon Hashem, upon the Lord. To my God, I called From his temple he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heaven trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and he came down. And so you've got this rebuke of the Lord from the blast of his nostrils. And uh, uh, it's, it's like, um, uh, you know, the, the Matthew passage. The earth shook. The rocks were split. Now, one of the minor prophets that uh, you've got to work a little harder to find in the Old Testament is Nahum. And Nahum, hold on, hold on, hold on, has got similar prophetic language in Nahum 1, 6. Somebody help me find Nahum. Come on, it's after Hosea, it's after Joel, it's after Amos, it's after Obadiah, it's after Jonah. It's one page in here, so you're looking for it. It's after Micah. Here we go. Thank you. Nahum, look at God's wrath against Nineveh here. God's, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. He's avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on his adversaries. He keeps wrath for his enemies. Now, he's slow to anger. He's great in power, but he doesn't clear the guilty. And his way is in a whirlwind and storm. And it's using 
earth figures for this. Clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out by fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. And so the rocks are broken in pieces. The earth shakes. That kind of language indicates to many that God is angry over the death of Jesus. And that Matthew's making reference back to those passages. And I want to suggest to you, we should not fall into the heuristic of thinking it's got to be one, two, three, four, five, or six. Our efficient God can have lots of reasons for what he does. And we should not limit scripture by the way we understand it. Now, this is what we've got right before Anne's passage she wanted to talk about. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city. Now, people argue over the grammar here and whether or not there should be a period in the original Greek text which wouldn't have had such. Um, uh, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, period. And then they come out of the tombs after his resurrection. They went into the holy city. Or you put the period after tombs. They were raised and coming out of the tombs, period. And then after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. We, we don't know for certain where the period belongs there. But this is huge. Now, Mark does not have this in his gospel. This is part of Matthew's insertion into the text. And I love this passage. First of all, you say, did that really happen? Yeah. I mean, we we have a Bible where this is not I mean, this is not ordinary. This is not common. This doesn't happen every day of the week. But you can go back and read about the Old Testament when uh, somebody was thrown into the tomb of Elisha. Somebody was dead. They hit the bones and boom, out they come. I mean, we, we, we understand that God does not live within the strictures of, uh, uh, of modern physics and medicine. He's, he, he, he wrote the rules for the universe. He can do whatever he wants to with them. He's not captive to the universe. He exists within the universe, but he also exists outside it. And the eminence of God means the universe is being held together by him so he can manipulate it any way he wants to. So, I, I, I mean, I don't have any problem with that. But what I love about Matthew is Matthew inserts this right after the death of Christ. The death of Christ is the seminal event which cannot be separated from the resurrection. The death and resurrection are, are the seminal events that, math, that, that Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, terms the gospel. The gospel... Matthew says to the Corinthians, I mean, uh, 
Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, Brethren, I would remind to you the terms in which I preach to you the gospel. That Christ Jesus was died, crucified, died, resurrected on the third day. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And when you read this passage, this needs to put all of us on notice of the power of the gospel. Matthew focuses, says, look it. Because of the death of Christ, the curtain is torn with all that that means. And because of the death of Christ, resurrection from the dead. And the, the beginning of that is shown immediately. The culmination of that will come in the day of Christ when he comes again. And, and it is God speaking to the power of the gospel. It is a tremendous passage. And it hearkens not only to the Nahum passage that we looked at before, but if you look at Zechariah, uh, Zechariah is, uh, let's go to Zechariah 14.5. Look at this. Zechariah, now remember, Zechariah's name itself. Zechariah is the Hebrew word for he remembers. And Yah at the end is an abbreviation of the name of God. So it's Yahweh remembers and Zechariah is a, is, is a prophetic book of how God will remember his promises. He will act upon his promises. He will bring his redemption. And, and Zechariah 14 is the last chapter of it. And it talks about the coming day of the Lord. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. I'll gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be taken. And he goes on to talk about all of the the wretched things that will happen. The Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that lie before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. And you'll flee as you fled from the earthquake in the day of Uzziah. Whoops, there we go. King of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come with all the holy ones with him. And and the idea being that God, when he returns, doesn't return alone. God returns with the holy ones. And, And so this gives us a glimpse into that end of time. And it's all tied to the resurrection, I mean the death of Christ. The reason Christ comes in victory later to gather his own is because he has died for his own. The reason we need not fear death is because we worship a resurrected Savior who died our death in our stead. And that's the power of the gospel and that's the power of Matthew's insertion of this at this point in his gospel, at least to me. So um, with that, we made it through one. Oh, we're not getting very far. Okay, I'm so sorry. I get carried away. I love to talk about this kind of stuff. Well, I also got this from Monty, um, Matthew 18, 5. Let's see if we can't get through a couple of these pretty quickly. Um, I'll try and do better. Um, 
At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And calling to him a child, he put the child in the midst of them. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And that's the verse 5. And the, the request that, that uh, uh, he put to me in the email was, is there a special or a hidden meaning in the word welcome in this verse? And, and he's using a translation where this word receives, dekomai in the Greek, receives uh, is, is translated welcome instead, which is a good way. Um, I don't think there's a special hidden meaning in the word. Uh, if you want to look at the word in the Greek, dekomai means to um, receive something offered or transmitted by another. It can mean to take. It can mean to receive. It can mean to take something in your hand and grasp it like I have this. I could, I could say, uh, you know, th- that I have now decoed this. Um, it, it's to be receptive of someone, to receive someone. You come to my house. Uh, I won't leave you outside. I will receive you. I will deco you into my house. Um, uh, I'll welcome you. And that's the idea behind this passage. It's just a, a passage. It's used in Luke eighteen seventeen. It's used in a number of different places. It's just the idea that, you know, it, that, that we should be welcoming um, children. Realize it, it, the culture and in the day of Jesus, children were not always welcome. You know, I, I still have, um, I have a buddy named Richard who's a dear friend, dear, dear friend. And uh, Richard will often, if we've got a meeting coming up, uh, uh, Richard will say, you know, if so, this is a legal meeting. If this lawyer is not in their best form, we're going to sit them at the children's table. And the idea being, you know, they, they don't get to sit with the adults because they're being childish. Um, I can remember growing up, we would at times have a children's table at family, big family events. I don't think it was ever though, because we weren't regarded as part of the, the important group. I think it was just they knew we'd have a lot more fun if we were with all the kids and not being looked at for our manners. Um, so we could put our elbows on the table. We could talk with our mouth full. We could do all the things that kids would much rather do. Um, uh, so, so it's not that, but, but back in the culture and in the day of Jesus, children were not readily welcomed. Uh, children were set apart. Uh, they didn't do bat mitzvahs for daughters, but they did do a bar mitzvah type thing for children. That's the coming of age for a Jewish kid. And so you could have a Jewish boy coming of age to study Torah and, and, and to, to be considered that. But, and that's your teenage years. But daughters were coming of age early and getting married at that age as well in that day. So children in this sense are, are, have not yet reached that level. So you can be thinking of this as, as, you know, toddlers on up. And Jesus says, welcome them. And he had a very different attitude than, than was most prevalent in that time and in that era. 
All right, uh, let's go back and let's, let's look at another one real quick. Um, I got an email from Wanda about Matthew 5, 21. And uh, here's, here's part of her email kind of edited. Before you move on from Matthew, I have a question about murder. People talk about abortion and killing innocent babies, and I would like to know if there's a difference in killing kids and innocent people every day. I have friends that say there's a difference because the unborn are innocent and the kids and others aren't. I totally disagree with that statement. I'd consider mine and your grandkids and kids innocent if someone killed them. This was sent to me the day before Uvalde. And I think uh, Uvalde answered the question. Um, there, there is no difference in the Bible. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Murder is murder is murder. Vonuo uh, uh, is the, the, the word there. It means to murder or to kill. Um, the important idea here is that at some point, humanity is... is recognized or should be recognized as the image of God. And, and, and Genesis 9-6 is a passage where God says the reason you don't murder, Genesis 9-6, the reason you don't murder is because humanity is made in the image of God. And so if you look at that passage, it's whoever sheds the blood of, of man... By man shall his blood be shed, because God made man in his image, in his own image, male and female. He created them in his image. And so that's the dignity, that's the basis of human life. Now, I understand that different people argue the inception of when does uh, human life actually begin. And that's a debate for another day, and, and I'm glad to share with you various thoughts. They extend, you know, I've got a lot of Jewish friends who tell you that biblically life does not begin until the child is breathing because Adam doesn't become a human being until God breathes breath into him. But I've also got friends who are Jewish who will tell you, no, life begins once the baby is, is functioning and, and able to function. And then I've got friends who, who, whether in the womb or out of the womb, and then I've got friends who say, no, that, that life begins the moment the sperm enters the ovum. And then I've got others who say, no, it's once there's a brain and a heart and a functioning, you know, living being, you know. And, and, and I, that's, that's a huge spectrum. And, and there's lots of considerations that go in there. But I will tell you this. The Bible is unequivocally clear, unequivocally clear that anybody who lives on this planet is made in the image of God. And while there are just punishments, and we can debate capital punishment, and just wars, and we can debate what makes a just war, that make killing okay and not murder, Within the common fabric of our society, we should care about every human life and we should see them as made in the image of God. And if someone is starving on the streets, our hearts should fill with compassion and seek to give them food or help them learn how to get food. We can debate the policy intricacies of all of that all we want. I'm talking about our heart and our desire and our goal. 
Um, here is a, a, an example. This is one of the most famous paintings, if not the most famous painting in the world today. It hangs in the Louvre. It's the Mona Lisa by um, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. If we were able, without getting shot by the local gendarmes, if we were able to take that painting off the wall and take the glass case off of it, I suspect there would be moral outrage in the world if we took our foot and just kicked it through the picture and just tore the picture up. Moral outrage that we had destroyed such a work of art. But as wonderful as the Mona Lisa painting is, it is not as wonderful as the work of art of a human life. And we need to take that very valuably. I, I just think we do. Okay, what got this started was peanut butter and jelly. Oh no, that's uh, PB&J is Pastor Brent Johnson. Uh, Pastor Brent sent me, uh, said I have to deal with these issues before I get past Matthew. And so we've got two and a half minutes. Sorry, Brent. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And we've got the bound stuff and the loose stuff here. Uh, uh, And unlike the Peter example later where it's in the singular here, it's in the plural because he's talking to all of them. Um, Two different issues here. And, And the first one is this. God cares immensely about relationships. God is a God of relationships. There's not a person listening to this. Hear me. There is not a person listening to me who doesn't absolutely need God's forgiveness. I don't care how righteous you think you are. I don't care how good you think you are. There is not a person here who does not need God's forgiveness. And the God who treasures relationships gave of himself in a way we cannot fathom and understand to create the relationship that you and I can have with him. And he does not want us within the church to do any less with other believers, certainly. He's got children and he wants his children to get along. And sometimes that involves children doing things that hurt others and there needs to be accountability and there needs to be forgiveness and there needs to be an ability to try to seek to value and salvage what God's willing to die to value and salvage now that does not mean putting yourself into a position to continually get kicked and abused If there's an abusive relationship that is abusive to you, you have no responsibility to live in the process of that abusive relationship. But it does mean that you have a responsibility to try to restore what can be restored. And that's within the context of this whole idea. And what does that mean? I'm sorry, Brent, I didn't have enough time to get into detail, but it means God values relationships. 
and then we are out of time and we have to go. But um, he asked about if, if two of you or whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Lots of views on that. My view is this. Um, it's talking about the church establishing what's morally appropriate for people to be doing and to establish those boundaries. Jesus said in John 16 that the Holy Spirit would come and would guide the church into these things. And, and, and so the binding and loosing is, in, in that sense, in that time, as Matthew's writing his gospel, you've got a bunch of Gentiles trying to figure out how to live Christian lives, and you've got a bunch of Jews trying to figure out what to impose on Gentiles. You can read Acts 15, where they're trying to figure out what to do, and, and they debate it, and they look at Scripture, and they pray about it, but ultimately they write a letter that says, it seems right to us and to the Holy Spirit to bind on you no more than the following. Uh, you know, and, and, and so this is talking about the importance of, of how we live, and, and the church sets some standards there. Um, okay, I did horrible at time control this morning. I'm sorry about that. I've run over time. God bless you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for paying attention. I'll try and address some more of these at some point in time. Some of you have said some things to me this morning you want me to address. I'll try and do that as well. But this is all we got time for. So let me bless you in the name of Jesus and we'll go to church. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that this word will go out and find receptive ears and receptive hearts and that you will uh, continue to instill the power of your gospel Lord, we need it today. We need it in the face of tragedies like Uvalde. We need it in the face of tragedies like the SBC. We need it in the face of, of tragedies that we face in our own life with sickness, with death, with decisions that have to be made. Lord, we just need to be uh, uh, washed anew, just immersed anew in the fountain of, of your grace, your gospel, your forgiveness, and your love, and your sense of purpose so that we can be resurrecting life on this earth as we walk around and, and communicate and work with people. Father, there's no greater work than to do that in your name, through Jesus. Amen. God bless you all.